I mentioned this in the weekly newsletter this week, but we look at these little circumstances like moving next door. Would the world end if we stayed here? Um, no. Um, will it magically get better when we move next door? No. Um, but I think sometimes, and, and I shared this in the newsletter, sometimes we can be like the nine lepers who received something when they asked and didn't even bother to come back and be thankful for it. And, uh, and I think that's really significant that when we actually pray to the Lord and he responds to our prayers, that we actually come with a posture of thankfulness. And so while it might have come across as a, an announcement, it's actually an opportunity to thank God and to praise him and to glorify him. And it's not the only thing. Sam brought an amazing story of Fitzroy Crossing. Who, who was praying for, for the ministry in Fitzroy Crossing and the opportunity for God to do stuff? Thank you, Lord. Who's been praying for the Connect Church that met, met next door last Saturday night? Um, who was praying that God would bring new people, new, uh, new co-laborers into the area to, to impact this community that we live in? It's like we've been praying for that and God's answering prayers. Who prayed that there would be more unity in the church? That the church in this area wouldn't be a bunch of little siloed, waving our own flag communities that, uh, that operate autonomously and, and you know, occasionally hop from one to another when they get disgruntled. We've been praying for breakthrough in that area. And last Sunday morning, eight churches I counted, there might have been more, got together and worshipped God in a public place together. Is that an answer to prayer? Is that God at work amongst us? Is that a God that is faithful? Sam said that. A God that continues to pursue. I think sometimes we, we look at these things and we kind of go, oh, that was kind of cool. And yet it's, it's part of what God is doing as we seek him and he responds. And he responds not always the way we want to, not always in the timing that we want, but our God is so faithful and our God is so good. And as Dan said, there's so much that, as we look at the words that people have shared this morning, and I'm going to test you now. Yes, what was Dan sharing? I just said it, so you got away with that one. What was Dan sharing? That God is good, yeah? What about Kate? What did Kate share? Open the door. That Kate was looking for one answer, but God said, no, I want you to experience my intimacy. I want to open the door to this relationship. Now you're going to test me. There was a third one. Mel, yes. What did Mel share? Surrender. That there's things that often we have blockages that, that aren't God's design and he wants to bring breakthrough in that place to bring surrender. And then Sam brought an amazing testimony of answered prayer, of, of challenges that he's asked questions for that haven't always had answers and yet hasn't changed God's faithfulness. And he stepped out into a place that was very foreign, that was very um, scary in some ways. There was fear of the unknown there and yet he saw God in that place. He he experienced the goodness of God in that place. He experienced some of God's power in that place. Often we end up at one end of a pendulum or the other. One end of the pendulum is God's holiness. God's amazing holiness. There is no one like God. Holy, holy is about being set apart, being unique. And, and we read in 1 Peter that Peter says, Be holy, for I am holy. The Lord God Almighty is, is the holy one, and you should be holy, for I am holy. And at the other end of the spectrum, we hear Paul saying, my grace is sufficient. I actually celebrate my weaknesses because it means that there's so much more opportunity for God to be strong. I'm actually going to quote it so that I don't get it wrong. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, but he said to me, 
My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. So we have the grace of God at one end of the spectrum, and the holiness of God and his call for us to be holy. 1 Peter 1, 14-15 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And we've got these two extremes. And when we hear these words, these words that people share that God's put on their hearts, sometimes we don't know where to put them. Are they God telling me, get your act together, be holy because I'm holy? Are they God saying, it's okay, I've paid the price, my grace is sufficient? We have this sort of tension in our mind. And yet, I want to share with you today from Revelation 2 and 3. Because in Revelation 2 and 3, there's seven letters that Jesus wanted to share with the church, with seven different churches. And we're actually going to break up the room. If you haven't brought your Bible, that's okay. If you've got a smart device, it's uh, got Google or internet of some sort on it, it'll take you to Revelation. Because Revelation, in each of these seven brief messages. There's a pattern to every one of them. In every single one of them, it says, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Every one of the seven letters towards the end, often the last line of each part, says, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Now, we've got to be clear, these seven churches were seven real churches that really did exist. These aren't just seven symbolic representations of things. They're actually seven physical locations. And so for starters, they're actually seven letters to seven literal churches. And yet this line also implies to us that it wasn't just meant for those churches. There's something in there for us. Now we've got to be a little bit careful with Revelation and, and people often try to get creative and yeah, do mental gymnastics to try and unpack and discover mysteries and things that are hidden. And we've already heard today that God is not a God that hides himself. God is not a God that plays hide and seek. He says, if you knock, the door will be open. And so I'd like to approach this not from a a place of trying to discover hidden mysteries, but a place of what is smacking us in the face. What's obvious? What's God clearly trying to say? So feel free if you want to try to hunt down those little rabbit holes, that's not the agenda today. Yeah, that's not where we're going. We're looking at the big picture, at the broad thing of what is God saying to the church? Because I think every one of the four things that have already been shared actually fit into this picture. In fact, you'll probably find that pretty much every word that the church receives fits into this picture somehow in a broad sense. So what we're going to do is we're going to break everyone up and I'm going to give you a church to look at. So here we go. There's seven churches. And what I'm going to say is, we're going to grab the first two rows here. I'm going to look at Ephesus, yeah? Revelation 2, 1 to 7. If you don't have a Bible, grab your smartphone, go to Google, and write Revelation 2, 1 to 7. Now, there's two answers that are going to come up pretty much at the top. They always do with Google. One is Bible Hub, and the other is Bible Gateway, right? I'm a fan of Bible Gateway, just to let you know. But if you end up at Bible Hub, that's okay. Um, So you haven't done anything wrong. You just get marked down at the end, that's right. So jump in there, grab Revelation 2, 1 to 7, these first two rows here. The back row there and the two back rows here. I'm going to get you guys to go to the letter of Church of Smyrna, Revelation 2, 8 to 11. These two front rows here, 
We're going to go to Pergamon. Three more. Yep, this is going to work. The front two rows here. There we go. Thyatira. Then we'll go the back row, the cool gang at the back. You guys can go to Philadelphia. And the back row, third row there. I'm going to bust you guys up and say you can do Laodicea. These back two rows here. Yeah? No, you're not with that row anymore. They're on their own. They're, they're the A team. They don't need any help. So Does, Has everyone got one? doesn't matter which one you've got. It just matters that you've got one. Okay, now you don't have to work together. It's all right. You don't have to work in teams. Okay, work in teams. I think we're working in teams. That's the consensus. Does everyone have one? What I want you to do, do you know what you're doing? No, might want to listen. Okay, I want you to read it. Maybe read it a couple of times. But there's a pattern to all of them, right? And the pattern is this. God starts by saying, who is the one that's speaking in the letter? He then goes on to say what he sees. He continues by talking about a complaint. He has a complaint. Now, what he sees in a complaint, you know, can sometimes be blurred together. Don't feel like you have to know which side's which. It's, it's in there, what he sees in a complaint. There is a trick question because uh, one of them doesn't have a complaint. So that's all right. Then there is a space where there is a consequence. And lastly there's a message to what victory looks like to those that are victorious. So what I'd love you to do is very briefly, you don't have to spend ages, from who is talking, what God sees, what's the complaint, what's the consequence, and what's the victory. Does that make sense? So just have a read of that, of that letter. Oh, I'll go back to the Bible verse so you can see. Yep, there you go. There's no trick questions. Hopefully it's pretty much plain. So, okay, we doing all right? Another minute. Okay, 30 seconds. Okay, I'm going to call you back in. Let's go. So now one thing that's kind of a bit ironic about this is when I was at school, whenever they asked comprehension questions, I always hated them. There was a question, read the text and tell me, you know, who was Sally angry at in this text? It's like, okay. Um, <laughs> so, so I always struggle with those because you go, well, it's obvious. It was written in front of you. And, and I've asked you to do a comprehension thing here, which is kind of sometimes, yeah, it's a bit ironic coming from me. But anyway, I just want to unpack this. And this is not the destination, but this is the process we're going to get to the destination. And um, Rach got a little bit of a light bulb moment. I think she's there already, but that's cool. <laughs> um, so we're going to start with, with Ephesus. So who had Ephesus? Who was the letter from? Who, who, was, who does it say it was from? The one who holds the seven ha stars in his right hand and walks amongst the seven lampstands. Yeah? Now, to us, this is kind of a little bit kooky, um, but in chapter 1, God has actually explained what this means. The seven stars are seven messengers to the church, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, the other thing that we don't, um, we don't understand culturally is that the number seven means complete, whole, in, in its entirety. So it's sort of something that's finished or complete. And so seven is referring to a sort of like a, a number that refers to something being finished or complete. And God's holding in his right hand, which is hand of power, hand that you hold your sword in. He's holding these seven stars and walks among the churches. So he's describing himself in a way of what sort of a God he is. What does he see? I see hard work and perseverance. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. So he sees their patient endurance. God sees their patient endurance. Oh, what's his complaint? They've forsaken their first love. Lost your first love for God and for others. Yeah? What was the consequence? What's going to happen? 
If you do not repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand. But for those that are victorious, what happens? I'll give you the right to eat from the fruit from the tree of life. So we see this pattern. We start from who it is, what God sees, a complaint, a consequence, and a victory. So who had the second one? Where are we? Uh, Smyrna. Who had Smyrna? The (laughs) A-team. They've claimed it now. Gee, better be good. Okay, from the one who? The first and last who is dead but is now alive. What does what does God see? Yep. We get a picture. They're suffering, they're poverty, but you're rich. He doesn't actually have a complaint for them, does he? But he says, don't be afraid of suffering, be faithful. And for those that are victorious, you will not be harmed in the second death. Have I got the right answers, the 18? Brilliant. Good to hear. I'm not, I'm not going to rush, tease this out too much, but we'll keep going through and tell me if there's anything that you want to add to these. Pergamon, from the one who is a sharp two-edged sword. Who had Pergamon? Yep. God saw their faithful witness that they were faithful witnesses. But their, his complaint was that they tol- tolerated sin amongst them. Am I on the right track? The consequence was to repent or I will fight against them. But those that are victorious, manna from heaven and a new name for those that receive them. Thyatira, from the one who is the son of God, eyes like flames of fire, feet polished bronze. Who had this? You guys up here. He saw their constant improvement in love their faith, their service, their endurance. His complaint was that they were permitting leading astray. Does anyone want to unpack that a little bit? That's right. Yep, hardening of heart and leading Jezebel in. But those who have resisted, there, there have been those that have resisted the false teaching too. The consequence was that some people are going to get what they deserve. Is that a fair summary? And others, and this is really fascinating, and I'm not going into detail, but I find this fascinating, that God's answer was, I'm not going to ask anything more of you. Really cool, isn't it? Sometimes we get hung up with, what's next, what's next, what's next, what's next? His answer to this bunch of people was, I'm not going to ask anything more. Very interesting. Those victorious will have Jesus' authority over their nations. Now, I've got to be careful here because um, these are two different groups of people and two different responses. So the ones that were permitting being led astray, um, they're going to get what they deserved. The ones that have resisted the false teaching and have been faithful, he's not going to ask any more of them. So just to be clear, very well well pointed out, he's not saying I'm not giving any more to you because you're a waste of space. Um, correct. Yeah, same principle that some were given something and they were given, didn't do anything with it. Yeah. So we move on to the next one, Sardis. Who had Sardis? Beautiful. Um, from the one who is the sevenfold spirit of God, seven stars. Again, we see this completeness in it. What God sees and God's complaint, I've kind of merged together because it's a bit, bit of the same. You think you're alive, but you're really dead. And the consequence was the suggestion to go back to basics, to hold on to it firmly, to go back to the original teaching that you had and to repent or I will come suddenly like a thief. And this is, these are all abbreviations. I'd love you to read through it if you want to uh, actually know properly what they say. But this is just a brief summary. For those victorious, it says they'll be clothed in white, the na- their name never erased, announced as Jesus's, Jesus's authority over nations. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Philadelphia. Who had Philadelphia? Beautiful. From the one who is holy and true, what God sees is they have little strength but they obey his word. And the consequence is I'll protect you and I'll, for them to hold on to what they have, hold on to what you have. And for those victorious, they're pillars in the temple of God, citizens in the city of God, and write on them a new name. And lastly, Laodicea, from the one 
who is the Amen, the faithful and true witness. He sees that they're neither hot nor cold, and his complaint is that I wish you were one or the other. You think you're rich, but you're really poor. The consequence is you need to buy gold from Jesus and buy white garments and ointment and receive correction and discipline and be diligent and turn from indifference. But for those that are victorious, to share a meal together as friends and sit with Jesus on the throne. That was you guys at the back, yeah? Is it all right? He'll spit you out of his mouth. Yep. In consequences. Yep. It's good. So we have this broad picture and it, it looks a little bit crazy as a chart. But what I wanted to point out is the obvious things, not the complicated things. And the obvious things is that there is a pattern. There is an obvious pattern to the seven churches. The seven letters have a pattern. And the first thing that's in the pattern is God wants to make it very clear who it is that's speaking. There is no confusion. It didn't matter what church it was. He starts by saying who is speaking. And this is really significant because the picture that he paints about who is speaking is one of his holiness. We have some church traditions that are really good at reflecting the reverence of God and others who are really good at reflecting the personal relationship and the intimacy of God. But it's very clear that God wants to initiate this conversation, this message, with the fact that he is holy. He starts with the fact that he is holy. And he expresses it in a bunch of different ways. He's the first and the last. He's an indication that he was there at the beginning, he's there at the end. He has the power of holding these seven stars in his right hand. He has authority. He's like a sharp two-edged sword. We start with a premise that there is the messenger of these messages is God the Almighty. Psalm 86 verse 8 to 10 says, Among the gods there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name, for you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. We don't start with a premise of an intimate, best friend, relationship God. We don't start there. We start with the power, creator, authority over all things that there is nothing like. And that's really significant and really important in these letters. We start with the premise of the one that has authority and power and there is no other like him. And it's really important because the rest of the letters and the rest of what says starts with that as the premise. And whenever we hear someone share what they believe God's saying, we have to put it up against who it is that's speaking. We have to acknowledge that when God speaks, when we read his word, it is the almighty, really, really significant starting point because the rest actually makes no sense without starting with that premise. The rest just becomes a good idea. The rest just becomes some nice advice that we can pick or choose. But God says, no, this is the authority on which I'm sharing this message with. This is the perspective. This is the, the holiness of who it is that's talking. When we move on to what he sees and his complaint, there's something else that's really significant. And that he does see. That God actually sees and pays attention. So often in our walks, in our journeys, we can struggle with the idea that is God even paying attention? Does God even know what's going on? Does God actually understand? 
It's interesting, in, in Isaiah 40, there's a well-known verse that people quote. We all know the, the soaring on wings of eagles part. Yeah, we love that part. But we actually forget the premise on which it starts with. Isaiah 40 doesn't start at 28, like most people quote. It actually starts at 27. And Isaiah 40, 27 says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. So the premise is a starting place of going, God doesn't see me, he doesn't understand, he doesn't get what's going on in my circumstances. And it's out of that that we read, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God. Where do we go? Back to this first part. Don't forget who God is. He's the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We can't receive encouragement from the last part of that unless we A, acknowledge that it comes from God the Almighty, and B, ignore, or not ignore, um, rebuke the question that says God does not see. God does see. But it goes further than that because he pays special attention to particular things, and that is heart condition. He doesn't just see, but he sees and pays very special attention to heart condition. You see this time and time in Scripture. He rebukes the Pharisees saying that you make the outside of your bowls nice and clean, but the inside's dirty. When um, they were looking for, for a king, we read in 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So the second thing that's really significant consistently across all of these things is God sees and is passionately concerned about the heart condition of the church. We see it over and over again. You've lost your first love. You've endured patiently. The world outside says you're suffering and you have poverty, but I declare you rich. You've been faithful witnesses, constant improvement in love, faith, service, endurance. They're all heart attitudes. They're not performance things. They're not what you look like. They're the things that are going on that drive, that motivate. We move on and we look at the consequences. How we just summarize those? What does the A-team reckon? It's not something you can wait about. Yep, you've got to change. It's either or. Yep, one or the other. The complaints and the consequences sort of match up, don't they? Bit of cause and effect. It goes a little further than that, though, because it's very clear that the posture of people is to repent where things are broken. Yeah? But the response of God is, I know there's one line where it says, you'll get what you deserve. But on the whole, people actually get more than they deserve. They get things are better than they actually started. The phrase I've used is, surrender to Jesus and he will provide. Now, this is effectively what Jesus came and declared when he was on earth. He gave the message of the kingdom. What was the message of the kingdom? Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. What's the kingdom of God? No. What's the kingdom of God? God's rule and reign. He's not a tyrant. 
His rule and reign is a place where life is abundant, where the fullness of life is experienced because it's his plan and his purpose that none shall perish, that all shall receive eternal life. He came for the sick, not the well. Why? Because the sick are the ones that need to experience healing. The kingdom of God was one that they celebrated, that was good news, hence it being called gospel. So when Jesus came, he said, your part is to repent and believe. Everything else I bring to the party, or wedding feast, as he described it as. You respond to the invitation, and I provide the banquet. You respond in obedience, and yes, there is that contrast. You can't do it your own way if you want to be part of the kingdom. The gospel is one of abundance of God's goodness, of things that were the way things meant to be when sin wasn't part of the picture. You can participate in that banquet. And the consequences are paints a picture of the gospel. Repent and believe. And I'll read from Acts 2.38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The part that we play in this picture is this little bit here, this tiny little thing. It's not insignificant. It's part of the letter to the churches. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. And the last part of the picture is God sharing his victory. This is a victory that's God's victory is not ours. This is not a victory that's earned. This is a victory that is given as a gift. 1 John 5, 4 says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 to 58 says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the works of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We can look at the little details, but the big picture says something really clear. What's the start of the big picture? God is holy. What's the end of the big picture? God wins. God is victorious. Those two things frame everything. The church needs to hear and be very clear that God is the authority. God is holy. If God says something, it is worth listening to. The conclusion is his kingdom is coming. Victory is going to be complete. And in the middle, we have an opportunity to surrender. We have an opportunity to repent. We have an opportunity to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches and respond. Does anyone know the Lord's Prayer? How does it start? Who art in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Does that sound like this? We start, we're taught to to pray, starting with going, who is God? We move on to say, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. In this place of responding, not because we earn the victory, because the victory is already there and it's given as a gift, isn't it? We're not in a place of works. We're in a place of responding to God who has the amazing, perfect plan. Now, the last part of the prayer, I, um, I had to look it up because the last parts are not in some translations of the Bible, and we can debate that, um, but that's not the point. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's in this place of, of journeying with God, the relationship. And then 
the part that's only in some translations is the, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And it depends what, whether you're Byzantinian or Alexandrian, I think, whether you add it or not. But uh, that's irrelevant. My point is, when you look at the whole prayer and you include that part, we actually have this pattern spelled out in how we pray. We have the same pattern. Start with God as power and authority, and that's the premise that you begin with. You move into a space of responding, of relationship, of obedience, of intimacy, of, of this place of God seeing us and desiring the best for our lives and equipping and enabling. And you conclude with victory that's not deserved, victory that's not earned. We start with a God who is immovable and we end with a victory that isn't earned. And in the middle, we're blessed with a journey of discovering God's best for us. The reason I wanted to unpack this today is that this is a summary of probably the last two or three months of what I believe God's been sharing with us as a body. And, it, and it's a little bit, a little bit nerdy in this format, I realize that. But the reason I wanted to unpack it is because God is consistent in his message. He's consistent in his story to the church. He's consistent in what he wants us to hear. We can look at single churches and single them out and say there's specific details. There's specific things that he wants to say to individuals and that's important. There's things I need to work on in my life that I believe God wants to speak into my life. There's areas I need to trust him more. It was quite funny this morning because um, you can probably tell that this is a fairly significant part of trying to unpack my message this morning. I arrived having forgotten to put it on a USB key. I was like, oh dear, this is all going to fall apart. But in that moment, I forgot the message. Because is it going to all fall apart? If the start of the message is that God is holy and the end of the message is that he is victorious undeservingly, is it all going to fall apart if I didn't bring my PowerPoint today? And immediately, I'm challenged by what I think God is saying this morning to me. I need to hear that. But for us as a church, we are moving I believe, into a season where this stuff is going to need to be foundational. This stuff is going to need to be, uh, we're going to need to be confident in this because there's more coming. These letters to the church are the foundation. The model is the foundation, not not the individual letters, of knowing who God is, responding in obedience, surrender, repentance, submission to Jesus knowing that he sees and he is intimately aware and desires to work with us on our heart condition, to relate with us in that space, and having hope and joy and peace about what the future looks like, to know that he is victorious and to trust him with that. These foundational things, I think, are very significant and and we've unpacked pieces of that. And I believe that's what Dan was saying about his goodness I believe that's what Kate was saying about his faithfulness and wanting to unlock doors. I believe that's what Mel was sharing about our surrender, this little piece here of repentance, of of surrendering, of not letting things get in the way of what God's calling us to. And the fourth one was Sam was a testimony of this whole picture. There's so much for us to be excited about as a church. There's so much for us to be trusting God in as a church. There's so much for us to be looking up in, 
being thankful and grateful and trusting. We sometimes get stuck in this little piece here. It's part of the picture, but it is not the whole picture. It's not where it starts. It's not where it's not where it ends. It is a small piece of the picture. And I really want us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, because that's where it starts and that's where it finishes. And everything else will have its place if those two things are healthy in our perspectives. When we have the right starting point and the right finishing point, the middle is the journey that we do together. And I love that that Sam shared about challenge, and he said it was for the young people, but I suspect it's for all of us. So often we wrestle in that middle space of going, I haven't had answers, I don't understand, it doesn't all fit together. And yet I would argue that if you know the starting point and you know the finishing point, there is actually even peace in not understanding. Because at the end of the day, when I don't understand, it's because I'm not God. Does that mean I don't care? No, I do care. But it acknowledges that I trust the one that does understand. I trust the one that does have the plans and purposes. I trust the one that does desire to see and to grow and to minister into my heart and for me to be fruitful in the ministry that he's called me to. So I'd really like to encourage each one. I'd really like to encourage us to have this perspective. What does it look like practically? Sam used some examples. Maybe it's your workplace. What does it look like in your workplace when God is holy and he's victorious? What does it look like? Does it change your perspective? What does it look like in your relationships with people? What does life look like when we start with the premise of God is holy and we end with the conclusion that he's victorious? What does life look like? The reason we've been pushing so hard into ID groups and activate groups and spaces like that is to unpack these real life challenges, these real things that are hard to comprehend as big grand ideas. But if we don't start with the truth of what God's saying to the church, we're going to end up in little rabbit holes of complexity and confusion. Let me pray. God, I want to thank you so much that you are holy. Lord, I admit that there's days that I think I'm right. And yet, God, I want to acknowledge that you are the only thing that is good. You are the only one that is true, that is righteous, that is holy. And Lord, we want to acknowledge you first in all things, Father. We want to acknowledge your power and authority over life. Lord, we want to acknowledge your significance in planning our lives and our purpose, that you created us with intentionality, Lord God, that that was your doing and not ours. Lord, we thank you so much for the power that you demonstrated on the cross. Firstly, your power of love to sacrifice, that was what, what, what was precious to you. But secondly, Lord, I want to thank you for the power of raising Jesus from death, that he is glorified and seating at the, seated at the right hand of the Father. And we worship you, Jesus, as our Lord and our Savior. Lord, I pray for us that you would remind and your spirit would convict, Lord, the perspective of who you are, your power and authority in our lives, and the significance and flow-on effect that has in our lives. But Lord, I also want to pray that we would rejoice and celebrate in your goodness. We would rejoice and celebrate in your faithfulness. We would rejoice and celebrate in your grace and love that abounds beyond no measure. Lord, I pray that that revelation would continue to permeate our hearts, Lord God. 
the parts of our hearts, Lord God, that are bitter, that are twisted, that are distorted, that deny you, Father, I pray that you would forgive us for that. You would help us to repent, to turn from our own ways and and pursue you, Lord God. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that in a way that acknowledges your goodness, that acknowledges your grace and your mercy, that rejoices that in our weaknesses you are strong. And Lord, I pray lastly that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the victory that you have prepared, the victory that you have declared, you have promised, and you have said to us to pursue, to acknowledge and to claim. Lord, I pray you would give us attitudes to acknowledge that in spite of our circumstances, in spite of the perseverance, in spite of the things that we see in our, with our physical eyes, Lord God. I pray you would give us eyes to see what you're doing and be able to declare your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven and to believe and to trust that your plans are good. In Jesus' name, amen.